Again, the preaching of the word is from Acts chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. As you know well from your experience with evangelism, the wicked of this world have one consistent message for the righteous, and it is shut up. Stop speaking. We don't want to hear. But thankfully, the righteous who have trusted Christ and who live for his glory in this age, they have a consistent response. And it's no. We will not. That was the response of the apostles Peter and John in our text. As you, I'm sure, are familiar, in chapter 3, they healed a lame man. And you heard in the reading of chapter 4 all the trouble that came after that, but how that trouble gave them an opportunity to preach Christ Jesus. That got them in the most trouble, and thus it brings us to our text. They've been interviewed by the council, and the council sent them away to deliberate. They make their decision, report it to the apostles, and we receive their response. So let's look at the text briefly and understand what's going on. Then we'll consider, in light of the rest of the Word of God, the teaching of this text, and then by God's grace, some application for our lives. So look at the text with me under two headings, the council's command, and then second, the apostles' answer. Notice the council has made up their mind that the apostles need to be silenced. Verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Consider first who these people are who are making this choice, this decision. This council is, if you look back at verse 3, which we read, a civil council. It has the strong arm of the law. We know that because they, verse 3, laid hands on them. They arrested them, just like our police have power to do today. And if you look at verse 5, it speaks of their rulers and their elders, and then it also includes their scribes. Whether the scribes are civil or church leaders, it's clear that there is a civil power to this council. But it's also clear that they have the collusion of the religious leaders, that the church and the state are binding together. If you look at verse 6, we see Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John Alexander. They're all kindred of the high priest. They're part of this council as well. Look at also, second, the motivation for their command. Verse 16 speaks of that. What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all. They are unable to suppress the fact of this lame man's healing. They don't want it to spread, but they can't undo what actually happened. If you look at verse 21, they threatened them, but they found nothing to punish them. But they are afraid, and thus we read in our text, verse 17, that it spread no further among the people. Now, what is it that they don't want to spread further? Look at, third, the content of their command. Verse 17 and 18 have it. Let us straightly threaten them that they may speak henceforth to no man in this name. And then in verse 18, when they report this decision to them, we have more information. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Total silence. No words, no speaking, no teaching. But notice, 
They don't mention the lame man. It's about Jesus. Their problem was with the preaching of the gospel. And that's what they want. Silence. Don't say a word in Jesus' name. Well, the apostles give their answer. And they make two humble, common sense appeals for why they say no. The first is an appeal to divine authority. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye. They go right to the bar of the universe and they say, you have to talk to the master, to the one in charge. We are not going to disobey him. We think that it's better to listen to him than to you. But notice how they are respectful. They don't say that directly. They simply lay it as a question to them. Should we listen to you or to God? You decide. But it's clear what they have decided. It was also clear when, of course, the apostles completely ignore this command and are hauled back again before the same council in chapter 5, that they say the same thing in a bit stronger words. Verse 28, the council says, did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us, admitting their own guilt and killing Christ. Verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So they appeal to divine authority, but also they appeal to plain fact, to what actually happened and that everyone knows happened. This also is an appeal to divine authority because the same God who wrote the Bible wrote history. He's the one who brought all things to pass. They're not just appealing to the healing, but to more. When they say, back to our text, in verse 20, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Not just the fact that a lame man was healed, but the fact that that fact pointed to and confirmed the fact of Jesus Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, the facts that the apostles were appointed to be eyewitnesses of, as John explains further in 1 John chapter 1. They've seen, they've touched, they've walked with Jesus Christ. And they were appointed then as apostles to witness to that very thing. They've been called to the bench by God to be witnesses. And they have sworn to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they're not going to do any different. These things actually happened. We actually saw them. We cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. Now, the apostles are an example here for all the church, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And they're teaching us this, that when under pressure to be silent, Christians ought to stand up boldly for the truth. When under pressure to be silent, Christians ought to stand up boldly for the truth. Let's open the rest of the word of God and see more about this under two points. First, the pressure to be silent, and second, the duty to speak the truth. This pressure is real, and it comes from two different directions. First, from without. People come from outside the church or outside of 
those who are telling the truth, and apply external pressure. That pressure we see on display in this chapter from two chief sources. One is the state, and the other is the church itself. So first, the state. We heard the apostles pray using the words of Psalm 2, and it says it very well. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Though the kings of this earth are by office ministers of God, servants for the church is good, they don't often do it that way. Instead, they turn and and punish good and let evil go free. And so they've done it here. This was true for Christ. He was put to death by the collusion of civil rulers in the Jews and the Gentiles. The apostles had this experience all the time. It is not foreign to any faithful Christian in most ages and places, even in our land of freedom. You remember the saga recently with John MacArthur and Governor Newsom in California. There is often pressure from the state the threat or even the imposition of civil penalties for continuing to openly declare the gospel of Christ and to obey him in worship and all other things. Even capital punishment is often the result of this persecution. The first martyr of the New Testament age, Stephen, just a few chapters after this, he showed that and many after him since our brethren in China and North Korea and other places across the globe. But it's not just the state that comes from without to crush the telling of the truth. It's the church itself. This is sadder, but it's also more powerful. And very often, when the state comes to crush the truth, the church joins with it and makes its work possible. It's exactly what happens here. The civil authorities in Jerusalem come together with the priests and the scribes against the preaching of the gospel. Contrast that, interestingly, with the people, the priests and the scribes and the civil rulers are afraid, verse 21, of the people, because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. But the church can join the state in imposing penalties, ecclesiastical penalties, even excommunication. Christ promised this would happen to his faithful disciples in John 16. He said that they'll put you out of the synagogues. And so it has happened in many times and places. So the pressure comes from without. But Satan, in his craftiness, makes sure that there's pressure also from within, from within the very heart of those who desire to tell the truth. And this is why the pressure from the state and church often are successful, unlike in Acts 4. It's because they find an ally in the heart of the truth teller. This sort of apostolic boldness just to say no is rare in this world. The pressure not to tell the truth comes from within, first through fear of man, which in Proverbs 29, 25 is told told to us that it lays a snare. We, as Christians, are tempted to internalize the criticisms of the wicked against the truth of Christ. One criticism put in striking terms in Acts 17.6 when they said that the apostles had turned the world upside down. (laughs) You're revolutionaries. You're causing a riot. 
And riot would be a good word for many things that happen in the wake of the teaching of the apostles. But of course, the question is being begged that the apostles caused the trouble instead of just exposing the trouble and the trouble being blamed on the sin, sinful men who wouldn't hear. You remember another striking example of this in the Bible when Ahab says to Elijah that he's the troubler of Israel. And Elijah rightly says, I've not troubled Israel, Ahab. It's you. It's you. But Christians will internalize that and think, well, I guess I really am the problem, or at least I don't want to cause men to pour reproach on me. So I'll just be quiet. And that often is connected to a second thing that comes up from within, and that's a bad conscience. When you know you're not living as you ought, the reason that we fear those that can kill the body is often because we don't fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You can understand how this works. I know that if I say this thing against that person, because I haven't dealt with that sin in my life, I'd be a hypocrite. And the words of my lips would contradict the walk of my life. And so better just stay quiet. And so you can see how both without and within, there's lots of pressures for Christians just to stay silent. But nonetheless, despite those pressures, as we see in the example of the apostles, we have a duty to speak the truth. This is true first in general for all Christians. By God's authority, you cannot but speak what you have seen and heard. It's a very clear teaching on this point from our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew chapter 5, he speaks to us of those who are blessed when they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verses, after verses 10 to 12, immediately goes on to say, verse 13, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Goes on, verse 14, Ye are the light of the world. Verse 15, Men don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. Verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now some rolling take this as saying Christians don't need to speak, they just need to live before the world and that's their evangelism. But the chief action of our life is our speaking. We're rational creatures. And so a life of Christian discipleship also necessarily includes the talk of a Christian, though of course it ought to agree with that life. A stronger proof of that is in the text we sang, Psalm 51. That was our call to worship. David, in confessing his sins, speaks of the telling of God's truth to others as the necessary result of God's saving work in his life. So Psalm 51 verse 12 begins, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. And in verse 14 and 15, it speaks again. What does grace do? Besides setting free the life, it especially sets free the lips. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, 
and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. An open declaration of the truth, the result of Christ's saving work that's true in every Christian. Two very clear examples of this that aren't just apostles. Do you remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? How she, without even being told, goes back to her city and says, Come, meet the man who told me everything I've ever done. They came and they heard from Christ himself who he was, and many of them were saved too. Do you remember how Christ commanded the Gerasene demoniac? The legion of demons was sent out from him, and he was clothed in his right mind. It was doing well, and he was eager to follow Christ. He said, no, go home and tell everyone else the great things the Lord has done for you. Now, when is this supposed to happen? Well, certainly when people request it. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks. And that leads us then to also the time of need. If someone is in need of a word that could save or help, then that's a good time to speak. Especially though when you have an office, when God has appointed you to do speaking for his name. Certainly include ministers, but there are other offices like the office of mother. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the law of kindness is on her tongue. Proverbs 31. The office of father to raise your sons and your daughters in the fear, the discipline, the instruction of the Lord, as Psalm 78 says, not hiding from the generation to come the mighty deeds of the Lord, but telling them that they might rise and tell the next generation as well. And when Christians enter to tell that truth at the right time, how are they to do it? Well, Ephesians 4 is the excellent model. It's a great place to go for how the Christian is to use his tongue. If you look at verse uh, Ephesians 4, verse 15, it gives the overall message of how Christians are to speak. But speaking the truth in love. You're to tell the truth and to do it in love. Now, a little help here because often it's hard to know what this means. Verse 25 tells us to put away lies and speak truth. We're never allowed to tell anything untrue. But then in verse 29, it says particularly what edifying speech is, what it means to speak the truth in love. And let's be clear, the rule of Christian speech in love is not the perception of someone else that it is loving or not. The rule is not, strictly speaking, the person who will receive your speech. It's the God who hears it and the standard of his word. Will that speech in itself do good for that person if he will hear it? Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Notice how even the Apostle Paul is clear. The words themselves are good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Words that in themselves have the tendency to build up, to give grace. So you speak the truth in love. But there's an element of Christian speech, especially in this text, that needs to be underlined. And it's that when Christians tell the truth, they ought to do it boldly. Now, why must this be? It's because whether we're telling facts of the Bible or just of nature, eyewitness testimony, we did not invent them. They come from God, the God of truth, the God who does not lie, 
And therefore, we need to proclaim God's truth with the authority with which God told it. Truth-telling must be bold. Now, that's in general, but in specific, the duty, as the apostles particularly show us, belongs to ministers. Ministers, especially, are to have the sense with Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The sense that Jeremiah had, as we read in chapter 20, he tried to be silent because of all the trouble that his preaching was causing him. And he said, when I tried, his word was like a fire burning within my bones, and I couldn't hold it in. So that even if the Lord takes away some of our ability to speak, nonetheless, in all other means available, we use those means so that by any means possible, as Paul says, men might know Christ. Now, I could talk at length about objections people bring in here, and it might help you just to address a few quickly. Uh, people will say, well, you don't want to be, you don't want to tell too much truth. You want to make sure that your lips are restrained. The Proverbs say, after all, that where words are many, transgression is not lacking, and Christians ought to live a quiet life. And that's true. But you need to understand what those texts aren't teaching. They aren't denying the fact that a word in season is like apples of gold in, in pictures of silver. That when a word does is spoken in truth and in love that builds up and with an appropriate boldness, it's never inappropriate. If your words meet those biblical criteria, then you need to say them and as often as possible. The Christian just doesn't go around mute all the time. That's not godliness. You can, in fact, you should speak true and edifying words as often as possible. We need to restrain our lips from sinful speech, but not from speech itself. People want to make peace, and they say that Christian truth-telling stirs up trouble. Well, in a sense, it does. Christ said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. But true peace comes from truth. Christ told us this. It's the truth that will set you free. And so the faithful Christian truth teller looks beyond the temporary struggle that sometimes gets stirred up because of truth telling and out of love for where the truth might bring a sinner continues to tell it. We could say more, but I'll leave it at that. I want to end with three applications for your own life so that we might be, by God's grace, like the apostles here. The first, though, is to use their example as a test for your own heart, and to test your heart in particular by your lips. Because you remember our Lord Jesus said, it's by it, the, what comes out of the lips is the overflow of the heart. So, listen to yourself and ask this question. Do you speak the truth. What about when you are under pressure not to? Do you speak the truth then? Like Peter here in his glory 
by the power of the Holy Ghost saying, no, we cannot but speak? Or are you like the same Peter when he was before, when he was before Christ who was at the high priest's house? And Christ was making the good confession and Peter was denying him under pressure from a few unimpressive people, including a little girl. You see, the same Peter shows us both the power of Christ to open our mouths and the power of our sin to close it. So which is you? Surely at different times, it's different. Insofar as you know that you have had a sinful silence, you need to ask yourself then, why? Why, when you ought to speak, do you not? Are you, for example, under pressure that you could have avoided? You see, often people, Christians even, won't tell the truth because they wrongly surround themselves with people who are embarrassed by the truth of Jesus Christ. And peer pressure, as we call it, closes their mouth. Do you, whether you, it's for your friends or your family or whoever it be, do you fear man? Is your foot in that snare? Would you like to speak the truth, but you're always looking over your shoulder to see who might be listening and what strings they might then pull in your life? Do you speak the truth by the permission of men? Do you, I wonder, not speak truth because you don't love your fellow man? You will spare them even hard things that they need to hear because you really don't have a zeal for their salvation or for their growth in Christ. Do you know the Bible speaks of rebuke, wholesome rebuke as a mark of love? Leviticus chapter 19, the same chapter in which we hear the summary that our Lord Jesus uses of the second table of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It says in that same chapter, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Sin is the worst thing that could happen to our friends, our neighbors, our family. And our speech needs to reflect that. Out of love for them, doing what we can with our lips to keep them from their sin. Do you not speak the truth because you simply don't know the truth? You haven't seen and heard and so you can't say we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. I don't mean here just not knowing Christian doctrine, though that often is a reason. We just don't know how to answer or we don't know what to say. But not having an experiential uh, connection to its truth. Not having a knowledge, not just of the head, but of the heart of God and of his truth. Not having, as Psalm 34 says, tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Perhaps it is that you don't speak the truth because the Lord has not opened your lips. And that's why your mouth is not showing forth his praise. If any of this is true, or even if it's true to some extent, then I call you second to repent. To repent of a sinful silence. Comparing yourself to the example of these wonderfully bold apostles and turning away from how you fail. Repent of your own silence. Repent of your silence about the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. Christ ought to be 
the most ready name to come upon our lips. His glory, his person, his work, his cross, his resurrection, these things ought to be the centerpiece of our speech. But there's a reason Christ gave the warning he did in Mark chapter 8. Verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Notice how Christ spoke not only of himself, but of his words. That's what we have here in this book. Are you ashamed at all of any of these words? Are there ones you wouldn't say or speak or read or explain or apply to someone else? We ought to repent of our shame about the word of God. Shame, we ought to also repent of yielding to pressure when people bring it upon us, pressure from the outside or pressure from the inside. And this is especially true when our words could do good to someone else. When we're called by our circumstances or by our station in life or by our office, especially as a parent or as a minister, to use our words to build up, to bless, to strengthen, to rebuke. We need to think in this way of our sins, not just of commission, saying things we shouldn't, but omission, not saying things we should. Think of all the possible blessing, even all the possible conversions. I say this to my own shame as a minister. That could have been if we had said a word in season. And insofar as the Holy Spirit brings to mind ways in which you have committed such sins of omission, I call you to repent and to seek the grace of Christ. But third and finally, to turn and in the Lord Jesus Christ, speak boldly for the truth. Whether you're a minister or not, there is a certain sense in which all of us participating in the great office of Christ, our prophet, have this command, Isaiah 58, 1, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, even as the text goes on to say, and show to my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. I call you in particular if you are parents. I've mentioned Psalm 78. I read to you its words to think of the next generation and to use your speech for their good. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. And not just in these particular relations, but to all, to this whole world, that through your lips and through your life, which adorns the words of your lips, that you would shine like a city on a hill and be like salt on this earth, that men may see your good works and hear your good words and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, I trust by the grace of Christ, this is exactly what you desire to do. So I want to leave you with some means and some motivations to get it done. The means include, first of all, the word itself. 
to hide it in your heart, knowing, as Christ said, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that this is what is inside, it's what's going to come out. Do you see how then Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorization especially, has everything to do with cultivating Christian speech? So do that. Do as well, remember to meditate and think upon who God is, what Christ has done, and all these excellent truths of the Word of God so that they'd have their weight upon your life so that you would feel as common sense, exactly what the apostle said, we cannot but speak of these most weighty, most important, and most true things. But then also, I know all of you will appreciate this application, do evangelism. You know, all of life is supposed to be evangelism. We're always supposed to be speaking of Christ. But it's these particular activities that you do that we usually call evangelism, properly speaking, like there in Upper Darby. That trains you in the way of constantly speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you in that good work. And I'm glad to testify that you have encouraged me in that good work as well. As well, encourage my family. Thank the Lord for that. So those are some means to develop the word meditation and evangelism. But then motivations. Why ought you to do this? Well, think and hide in your heart the example of the apostles. When you notice that pressure has come, remember their bold stand before the council. And let that give you some Christian boldness. There are many others in the Bible, and you can read in history of Great men like the martyrs of the church who can fill you and strengthen your spine. But also think of the blessings that come from telling the truth. Blessings that come to your own soul. As the truth comes out of your mouth, it helps you. It confirms you. There's this natural phenomenon, which even the wicked use when they try to persuade people. It's that when people say something, they tend to make their life agree with what they say, because they don't want to be hypocrites. Now, you don't want to just pretend the kingdom of God is not talk, but power. But in, with a good intent, speaking the truth, you can help yourself more and more live. Accordingly, there will be many blessings that come, blessings to others as well. But the greatest motivation I can leave you is this. You ought to speak for Christ because Christ spoke for you. You remember that this was the major part of his ministry before his death. He came to preach. That's what he said in Mark chapter 1. And he did it all the time, constantly speaking for this upbuilding of the church that he would purchase there on the cross. If Christ did that for you, then can you not open your mouth for him? But think also of this. And let it greatly motivate you as you tell others the truth. You cannot be silent because Jesus was made silent for you. Because he, as Isaiah says, was like a sheep before his shearers. He was dumb. He opened not his mouth. The reason that happened to him was so that it would not have to happen to you. 
so that your mouth would be opened. As we sing in Psalm 51, he bore our griefs for that very purpose, that we would not be silent, but we would show forth his praise. So may the Lord give us grace to speak for the glory of our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our Savior Christ. We rejoice in his blessed speech that we've just read in this Bible that he by his spirit has inspired for us. We thank you for the preaching of the word. We thank you, Lord, that you've appointed all of us in all of our various offices and places and circumstances and abilities to be tellers of the truth. And we pray for grace to follow your apostles, even when pressure comes from without, and as we confess so often from our own hearts, that we would not fail in this duty, that we would tell the truth, speak it in love and with boldness, knowing that you, the God of truth, you do not lie, and all that you say is faithful. Our God, we confess our sins in this way, that we have very often failed you. Lord, we very often, just like Peter, as he watched Christ, very often denied you with our lips and with our life. Forgive us, Lord, and we pray as David did. Oh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may show forth your praise. And we ask it trusting in Christ alone. Amen.